0: Oh, thank you. I look better with all the feathers on. (laughs)
1: Well, you look just fine without your feathers. <laughs> uh, you know, and around here with the kings, it's probably safer you don't have your feathers on. Yeah. <laughs> Could get plucked. <laughs> Could get that... That's... He's been badly
0: plucked in few situations.
1: I saw that, I and some of that is in... It, <laughs> yes, we see that in the yeah. film, and yeah. that's just heartbreaking.
0: I've been I, in a crowd where people are holding up their children over other people's heads. So Grab the feathers, grab the feathers. And I'm there rip,
2: rip. Oh, souvenir, said,
0: please don't that. do that. But then,
1: and... With that, yes, you're listening to Behind the Lens, where we do weird and wondrous things sometimes.
2: What's with the feathers, then?
1: Do you know who that was? No,
2: I have no idea.
1: Ah, well, in honor of a new new movie that has come out called I Am Big Bird, the Carol Spinney story. Oh, right. That is part of my interview with Carol and his wife, Deb, uh... When the film played at L.A. Film Festival last June, it was my number one pick event of the entire festival. Okay. Um, and I got to sit down with them and, of course, be regaled in Big Bird voice and uh, <laughs> Oscar the Grouch voice.
2: That's why that voice sounded really familiar to me. That's yeah.
1: why. You know, oh. Brian and I, we had a, we were wondering if the child uh, in you was still alive and living. <laughs> Slightly. Slightly. A bit comatose, but... Slightly. Yeah. That well, was nice. That was actually nice. So, if you're just joining us, this is Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie and dot com, and all over the place. And my little partner in crime, my cinematic cohort, Greg uh, Srizavazdi.
2: At DeepestStream.com.
1: That's right. Yeah. And little, little hiccup today. You know, the glory of live, uh, anything live media. No video today. We will have no f- video for you. Um, yeah. Horrific traffic out there today. Major accidents, freeway closures. So Lydia was not able to get here, and we miss her. And we miss her dearly. Um, yeah. which just means you get an extra, you know, chocolate croissant thing.
2: Oh yeah, I'm, no, I'm gonna raid all those cupcakes outdoors, and uh, I'm a little bit more relaxed now without the video. I always get always nervous looking at my computer <laughs> and shaking. Now I'm I'm in, I'm kind of in my element.
1: Well, I have to tell you, I was talking to yeah. my aunt. Uh, the other day on the phone yeah. and she was commenting about, you know, how good you look on camera. Oh,
2: well, she needs to get her eyes checked. And but you, thank you, and you, <laughs> and well, thank you and, so much. Thank you, you so much.
1: Greg looks like a nice boy and she goes, I'm not going to try and say his last name. So.
2: <laughs> but I, we do miss Lydia. So we do. I would I'd be fine with the video with her here. Just her well, presence is missed.
1: Her presence is missed and we do love the video for those of you potential advertisers and all who are watching us thinking about uh, becoming part of the the behind-the-lens family yes we do it is we have audio we have video we have web so please you can find us everywhere Um, so and immediately after today's show we're gonna rebroadcast this one so you can listen to Big Bird all over again but we've got a fun show today We've got eleven fifteen, we have Leia Meyerhoff, writer director of I Believe in Unicorns. Do
2: you believe in unicorns?
1: Well, okay. <laughs> if we had video, you would see yeah. I am oh, wearing, right. I'm, I'm wearing a unicorn shirt today. Yes. But it's a unicorn shirt for Pixars Inside Out.
2: Oh, okay. Okay. Very multicolored unicorn. It is
1: a very multicolored unicorn that everyone will be able to see in the in Inside Out in June, June 22nd, I think, when it comes out, or June 25th. Is
2: that unicorn holding some kind of coffee or latte or something? What is that? That's a little... It's a
1: coffee-drinking unicorn. (laughs)
2: Okay, not bad, not bad.
1: Not bad. But since we're talking to Leia this morning about I Believe in Unicorns, and then I end my day talking about I Believe in Unicorns when I moderate a post-screening Q&A of the movie at Arclight in Hollywood tonight.
2: You must be excited because this is a very... Interesting and unique, and actually very resonant film. I really loved it.
1: I mean, I it, visually it is a stunner, and we're going to talk to Leia about this because this film is shot on Super Eight, Super Eight, Su- Super Sixteen, Super, okay. and sixteen, and she's got claymation animation in there. The visuals are just hypnotic; they are stunning, and they fulfill every fantasy ideal of what you know, unicorns would be.
2: And it really gets into the head of the main character. You really see her, her journey. Yeah, and so.
1: especially since it it's a great contrast to darker themes oh, yeah. that are yeah. going on mm-hmm. within the characters. But we'll get into all of that with Leia. We also have a big, big hot-button topic at 11.30. Okay. The public uproar, outcry, um, breastfeeding has become, you know, a big big soapbox for so many people in this country, mm. and filmmakers John Fitzgerald, Chantal Molnar, and Jennifer Davidson have made a documentary on that subject. So we have Chantal joining us today at 11.30, to, and we'll talk to her about the making of this documentary and how it fits uh, in today's world, and what's going on in it. And, but then we've got a bunch of other sound stuff, and we'll bore you in between. So... <laughs>
2: No, you won't. I'll bore them. You won't bore them. You're, you're quite learned.
1: So. Sometimes I'm learned. I'm here to learn from you. You're here to learn. <laughs> so, without further ado, let's talk more about I Am Big Bird. This is this is a film that just it delighted audience at, audiences at Ollie Film Festival last year when it premiered. So
2: why was it your number one pick out of a slew of films?
1: It's Big Bird. <laughs> This is the man who is Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch. Yeah. I mean, I still have an Oscar that I've had since Oscar first came out. Mm. Oscar sleeps on my bed every night. Really? Yes. The cats love Oscar.
2: Okay. Okay.
1: But, no, Oscar the Grouch. The first thing that I asked Carol when I sat down with he and with director Dave la matina was i said why isn't the film called grouchy is good
2: (laughs) (laughs) you just wanted your own kind of version of that i wanted my own version you know
1: oscar really gets he gets pushed to the pushed to the background with this documentary because it is it's all about carol it's all about big bird because big bird is the single most recognizable character in the world big bird is an entree for every child Uh, For every adult, as we heard just in the opening, little anecdotes that you hear throughout the film, but that Carol and his wife, Debbie, uh, relayed to me. You know, going into crowds dressed as Big Bird, and parents encourage their kids, grab the feathers, grab the feathers. It's like, poor Big Bird. Poor Big Bird. But I have to give so much credit to Carol's mother, she encouraged him and this is this is a common theme because I've interviewed Frank Oz before I've interviewed um, Kevin who does uh, who did Elmo for years mm. and their parents, mothers especially very instrumental in promoting that creative that imagination in their sons and so much so that with Carol his mother actually built you know a puppet theater and they did it in secret when he was a little boy. Oh wow. And his, older, and his brother helped, and they kept it a secret until it was to, totally done. And that's when he first started puppetry. And uh, his wife even said, they still have it. They have that theater, and they have the original puppets from what, that were made when he was a little boy.
2: That's amazing because, well, a lot of people, they throw a lot of things away from their childhood. And that's mm-hmm. one of the things that's so great that he kept that.
1: And yeah, and it's That's become amazing. so it's such foreshadowing for where his life would go. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it, I think it's key because it's his mother that helped him still. And I think what we've seen over the years is that Big Bird, Oscar, the rest of the Muppets, and even now with the resurgence of the Muppet movies that Disney and, Mande- and Mandeville have done uh, with the new Muppet TV series for adults. Right. Everybody, the Muppets connect to all of us in a very, very deep-seated, visceral, emotional way. And But they're kids that, it makes you wonder in today's society, are they gravitating towards the puppets and the Muppets because of a lack of, are they getting more benefit and more love from these puppets and from their own parents? And it's interesting, and it's something that, that Carol is very passionate about, and had something to say.
0: Big Bird and other puppets are in a position to do something that real people can't do with their human persona showing. And uh, I feel that uh, um, puppets can get to say things that kids will listen to more. Mm-hmm. And even uh, therapists and all who are trying to reach different children who are having problems, if they have a puppet with them, they'll often tell a puppet something that they won't tell... A stranger who is mm-hmm. asking, Well, "Why do you feel that way?" or something, you know. And uh, so puppets are—they'll are, are, always be around. One of the questions I've often asked is, uh, "Will puppets are they doomed because of computer-generated uh, movies? And they're beautifully done, three-dimensional things. Bugs Bunny in three dimensions, straight But uh, I, I haven't seen that, but I can picture it. <laughs> but uh, uh, hey, I think that—but uh, puppets are immediate; they're live. So I think there'll always be a need for them, as, almost as much as always. And
1: mm-hmm. when we get mail from lots of kids from around the world and they're all written to Big Bird or Oscar.
3: And as if they're real characters. You know, Big Bird, mm-hmm. will you come over to my house next week? You know. They they just think One they're said, real. How
0: about next Thursday? <laughs>
3: <laughs> you can have the top
1: bunk if you sleep over. I uh, it's it's to watch Carol and Debbie talk, go back and forth. They are the synergy, they're each one side of a coin, and it's just beautiful. And the love that they have for Big Bird.
2: Well, he was saying it's Big Bird just so immediate. You mm-hmm. know, you can have so much technology and fancy-schmancy CGI and all the accoutrements of the visual aesthetic, but when you have, you know, in, you know, with puppetry and the immediacy of the human contact – with you know, mm-hmm. seeing that re- the realness of Big Bird, especially when you're a kid, it not only boosts his imagination as a child, it connects to our own imaginations, and hopefully we hold that on, we keep that with us moving forward in our lives. So I haven't thought about Big Bird in years, actually. But well, you know, now cool.
1: you have to remember that Sesame Street is in its 46th year. Yeah, 46 years. This is now another generation of kids. Right. So the parents, obviously, that grew up with Big Bird and the Muppets have now brought that same love it has gone to the next generation yeah and you know it's something that I saw in children's programming back in Philadelphia because that was one of the one of the big regions where children's programming really took off in the in the 50s and 60s that was like the bedrock was Philadelphia and one of the best shows longest-running shows was Captain Noah and his magical ark Captain Noah was a a reverend, uh, Carter Merbrier and his wife, Pat, and she was Mrs. Noah. And it was Noah's Ark and all of these puppets. And it was the puppets that were so endearing to all the children in the Delaware Valley in the Philadelphia Tri-State area.
2: I can imagine the the assortment of puppets and how different they looked from one another. Oh. Just in my head. I've never heard of it, but it seems like a... Great image. For some
1: great imagery, you can go to the Broadcast Pioneers of Philadelphia.com, the archived website. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of things on there and lots of history about the show, which I'm so happy to say was on WFIL-WPVI for all those years. So, (laughs) well, you know.
2: Captain Noah and his magical arc.
1: Uh Uh-huh. But there again, it's the puppets. So I think Carol's right when he talks about about the puppetry and the, con- and the live connection.
2: I mean, it, it's just amazing to think, I'm sure he thinks about this quite often, you know, it just the, the impact he's had on people's lives just through that.
1: Well, and it's not just the impact on people's lives. This is the impact on his life as well. Mm. And the greatest gift that he's gotten out of Big Bird
0: uh, getting to getting be Big Bird was the second greatest thing I ever had happen to me And I, But I, I'm so glad I still have the job For as long as I want I've been told that over and over Jim used to always say that too He says, how long you want to do it? I said, until I can't do it
2: Well, mm-hmm. until he can't do
1: it Until he can't do it Yeah. And luckily for all of us I don't think Big Bird's going anywhere For a long time to come yeah. well, But I do think Oscar needs a new garbage can <laughs>
2: So Oscar was your favorite growing up.
1: Though. Oh, of course you know me. Yeah,
2: yeah. I like um, I kind of like Bert a lot growing up.
1: I could see that. You could see. You could. See, I could see that.
2: Yeah, like I liked his what a Savoir Fair. So uh,
1: Savoir Fair. <laughs> well, oh, uh, I see Brian. Brian moving to the phone. We have phone lines that are lighting up, which means we could have our first caller on the line today. Oh, cool. Yeah. And he's typing. He's... Don't mind us. Don't mind us. Up. On, okay. And joining us right now is the fabulous visualist writer-director, Leah Meyerhoff. Hi, Debbie. How are you? I'm fine, Leah. How are you? I'm doing well. I am. If you, if you haven't figured it out already, I am in love with your film.
4: Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you.
1: <laughs> this is, it is visually hypnotic. It is technically impressive. It, this is a real stunner. And the way you have created your visuals to immerse us, as Greg was saying earlier, it really takes us into Davina's mind.
4: Yeah, I really, I wanted, I believe in unicorns to be a subjective as possible and really you're you're in this journey with this girl you know the full full hour and a half you're just in her mind
1: I mean it's just uh, I was in it for the entire time and so much of that not only due to her performance to Natalie Dyer's uh, Natalia Dyer's performance but the cinematography that you and Jaron created and I'm so thrilled I'm going to talk to him tonight Moderating uh, the Q and A for your film at the Art Fair. Yeah, and we're
4: actually one of the last features to shoot on a Fuji Super sixteen millimeter stocks. So I'm sure he'll be excited to talk about that as well.
1: I mean, I I just I shot all when I did did production. And I was in still in film school. Everything I did was on Super eight. Yeah, uh, I did some Super sixteen, but pretty much everything was Super eight and. I we got all...
4: some Super 8 as well. It was a real collage of a production.
1: Oh, and I, I just, it, it is. That's why I said it is visually hypnotic, and you just capture the whole fantasy and the super saturation, and surrealism that she uses as her escape from life. Um, yeah, well, thank you. I mean, all of the aesthetic decisions in the film were really made with the
4: character in mind. So we wanted to tell a story that felt like it could be created inside the mind of this imaginative, dreamy, intelligent, complicated teenage girl. And the, the whole aesthetic approach to the film is really how does this girl see the world and can we take the audience on this fantastical journey into her mind and into the way that she interacts with her surroundings?
2: Well, well what's the was there obvious advantages for you as the filmmaker in, in shooting within areas that you knew about that you grew up in? Working with your mom. Yeah, I working mean, this with is your a mom. personal yeah.
4: story um, in a lot of ways. And the most autobiographical element of the film is that my mother, in real life, plays the mother character in the film. Yeah. And my mother has MS. She's been in a wheelchair since as long as I can remember. And when I was writing the script, that just naturally worked its way into the story. And I was interested in what happens when a child grows up where that mother-daughter roles are reversed and where the child is a caretaker. And this character, similar to my own childhood, she wants to escape and have uh, a child of her own, which leads to this really visual fantasy world. And so for production, we returned home to the Bay Area in San Francisco, and I filmed inside the house that I grew up in and in the high school that I went to and a lot of locations that I was familiar with as a teenager, which was fantastic um not just in terms of bringing a level of authenticity to the world of the film but also just on a personal level it was a wonderful way to connect with my local community and bring filmmaking into these areas that don't always see it
1: now what does that do to you when you're you step back in time yourself into your old high school into the house you grew up in does that I mean it's intense. It's, there's a lot
4: there. I mean we could we could talk for hours. Um, it's definitely it was a cathartic experience in many ways and um and just you know a really intimate one. I think working with Natalia Dyer and it's her first feature film and she was 16 at the time of filming. I think knowing that that this is coming from a personal place for me and knowing that there was real heart and honesty and vulnerability to the storytelling I think that really helped her give her all and give a real brave honest performance it's not a difficult I mean it's a difficult role um for a first feature film and she I think really knocked it out of the park and I think having me there and and having gone through a lot of the things that she was going through on screen, I think that just added to the truthfulness of the story.
1: Well, not only was this, is this a difficult role, but the fact, because of some of the thematic elements in the relationship that, between Davina and Sterling, um, and the fact that Natalia was 16 when you filmed this. Yeah, that, it was delicate. I mean, there are sex scenes in the film. I'm not going to shy away from it. Right.
4: We dealt with issues that that I dealt with when I was a teenager and that teenagers today deal with and we did so in in a gritty raw honest way um, but in terms of production you know we did everything very carefully and made sure that she felt incredibly safe and I think again it was helpful that helpful that I'm a female director for one mm-hmm. um, you know very different than you know Blue is Form of Color and some of these other films you hear about with male directors yeah. and dealing with teenage sexuality and also helpful that it was a personal story for me and that the same way that the actors are making themselves vulnerable as a director, I was making myself vulnerable, and it was a real close, intimate collaboration you know, and I is there a way be happier to,
2: with it. Is there a way for you to describe the feeling when you show your film to to people and they get such an emotional or, or visceral reaction to your narrative and having them maybe come up to you after a screening and tell you how much your story meant to them? It's
4: the best feeling in the world. I've been on the festival circuit. This film premiered at South by Southwest in 2014, and I've been traveling the film festival circuit for a full year, Mm. primarily because I love talking to audience members after, and especially this film speaks especially strongly to a younger female audience. And having these young girls come up and say, thank you for telling my story, or thank you for telling a story that I can relate to, I think so often female characters in film are, don't feel honest and they don't feel real, and there aren't enough of them in the first place. And mm-hmm. so having these young women and men come up and say, thank you for, for this truthfulness and for showing a story in a different way, something I haven't seen before, um, there's nothing more rewarding than that as a filmmaker, and it, it sustains me and makes me want to keep going and make more films.
1: How difficult was it for you, to cast this film because this film rises and falls on Natalia and her male counterpart. And Peter. Peter yeah. Peter Vack.
4: Was, um, the ca- I spent a lot of time in the casting process. I knew that I wanted to cast an actual teenage girl to play a teenage girl. And that's a challenging thing to do. And we didn't have the budget to do a huge nationwide, you know, talent call. So mm-hmm. what I did is I reached out to every casting director that I knew and said, Who has come across your desk recently? Who, you know, who's out there? Who are are the next breakout stars? And Natalia Dyer, she was up for the role that Haley Stainfield got for this Coen Brothers film, True Grit. And (laughs) she was like on the top three and didn't get the part, but, you know, caught the eye of a casting director. And that's how she came to my attention. She was in high school. She was a junior in Nashville, Tennessee. And I emailed her and we had a Skype session and I just fell in love with her. And I said, this girl can carry this movie. And she flew out and met me, and she was fantastic. And then Peter Vack, he's older and more experienced, and we actually we have the same agent. And I cast him a little more traditionally. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of their callback sessions, I had Natalia tell me. I brought in the three male leads that I like the best, and I asked her, I said, who do you have the strongest connection to? And she just had a real strong chemistry with Peter. And then the third actress in the film, Julia Garner, I met uh, here where I live in New York, and she also is just stunning. She's a real breakout star. She's already launching herself into Hollywood. And I loved her so much that I wrote a part for her um, as Natalia's friend. No, she And then, of course, my mom. My mom was an obvious one. Of
1: course. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) So now, if your mom were here right now, we were asking your mom, how is it having her daughter direct her? What do you think she'd say? You know, my mom actually hasn't seen the finished film yet. And so
4: that's something that's going to be a real interesting experience. Uh, I'm waiting until we have our San Francisco theatrical for her to see the film. Um, But I think she would say that it was a great experience. Um, She, again, similar to Natalia, gave a very brave and honest performance. And it's not often that you see disabled actors on screen you usually see able-bodied actors playing disabled Mm -hmm. and i think despite the challenges inherent in that and not alone you know not to mention that she's my mom which just brings a whole other element of complexity (laughs) i think it was one of the best decisions that i could have made and i actually before i made this feature film i made a short film to test this out where i also cast an actual 16 year old girl Mm -hmm. and my mom and shot just a 10 minute short and that short film, Twitch, was the one that played at Slam Dance and won a prize there mm-hmm. years back, which it all comes full circle. It's since been expanded into this feature, and now we're screening it at Arclight as part of the Slam Dance Cinema Club. Mm-hmm. So it's been, you know, it's been a journey, and it's, it's just beginning. We're premiering, I believe, in Unicorns, opens theatrically in New York next week on May 29th at IFC Center, and then it's coming out to L.A., the Arena Cinema, on June 19th. And it's also available on demand and, and a whole host of other platforms. Um, but I'm, I've been traveling with the film, like I said, for the past year to festivals in, you know, in Australia and in London and in Canada and just all over the world. And it's been the most rewarding experience to meet young people and particularly a younger female audience who connects with this story.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, for you yourself, as you made the jump from short films into the feature. What did you find the biggest learning curve or the most daunting element of that? I think with a
4: short film, you, because it's so quickly and your shoot is just three or four days, it goes by real fast. I think the feature film, the biggest lesson I learned was just sustainability was once you get to, you know, week three, keeping that momentum up and that energy up. Um, And with this, with I Believe in Unicorns, We were shooting on film, and once we wrapped principal photography, we then had a whole second unit where we did more experimental visuals um, with, like, expired 16-millimeter film stock and lighting things on fire and fireworks and all kinds of, you know, really creative stuff. And then we had a third unit just for animation, Mm -hmm. and we did stop-motion puppet animation on 16 millimeter film, which if you talk to animators, it's like one of the most challenging things you can do. You're essentially animating blinds, and that took several months. And so that was a real learning curve for me in terms of just the amount of work that goes mm-hmm. into creating, you know, the, the story of a feature film.
1: I have to tell you, the stop motion, I mean, just blew my mind. It, it is absolutely stunning. It was fantastic Stunning. to do,
4: but kind of insane. I mean, we literally, <laughs> we built a miniature world. We bought all these small plants and covered the ground in dirt. And I would wake up every morning and water the set. <laughs> and we had these little puppets in there. And, you know, our Air s 3 set up above it with some lights. And it was like, move the puppet a centimeter, shoot a frame of film. Move the puppet another centimeter, another frame of film. I think the math of it was like, Three hours in the real world ends up being one second on screen.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
4: it's a really laborious process, which is, I think, why animation is always so fantastic, because people have to put so much time and effort into it that, of course, it's going to end up being good.
1: Well, and this is so. part of the, this is, and you just explained part of the of the wonder and joy that everybody gets when they see a film that comes out of Leica, with there's yeah. with all the stop motion, with you know Coraline, um, and Paranorman. And it's just, it's fabulous. And, that, and and I also
4: understand why films like Fantastic Mr. Fox or some of these other, you know, Tim Burton films, now I understand why they have millions of dollars and <laughs> giant crews, because it really is an ambitious endeavor.
1: <laughs> what did but you, incredibly rewarding, so. What did you learn about yourself as a director in tackling I, this project? Yeah,
4: um, I learned that I work very well under conditions where I have a small, intimate set where I can just be with the actors. And that is my real strength as a director. In addition to a really strong visual sense, I clearly come from an art school background. And I've always known that I have a very um, unique way of looking at the world. But this feature in particular taught me, it gave me confidence in working with an actress who had never been in a feature film before. And creating a space where she could feel safe and really bring herself and her honesty to the set. And I think that is something that I'll continue to do in my future films, whether or not they're with you know, younger actresses or older ones. Um, I also have learned that I want to continue telling stories with strong female protagonists. In addition to directing, I believe, in Unicorns, I'm also the founder of a female filmmaker collective called Film C'est
1: I was just going to ask you about yeah,
4: that. And so one of the women, the the head of our Los Angeles chapter, Brooke Siebold, she's going to be at the Q&A at Arclight, and you'll get to meet her. Um, Essentially, Film Fatals is a collective of women, feature directors, primarily narrative, but also documentary, and we get together every month in each other's homes to support each other and collaborate on projects and build a community in which we can get our films made and seen. And it's something that started in my living room about two years ago, just as I was about to make I Believe in Unicorns, with just six other women, and has tapped into a need and has exponentially grown, where we now have hundreds of members in dozens of cities around the world, Los Angeles included, and the creation, making the challenges that I face as a female filmmaker in making I Believe in Unicorns, seeing that I wasn't alone in that, and that there are dozens of other women directors out there facing similar challenges and opportunities, that's something that I've learned in this process as well. And then I'm very excited about the future. I think we're at a, at a turning point mm-hmm. in our culture where we're starting to realize, hey, we need to see more films made by women, and we need to
1: see more female characters on screen. So how can other female filmmakers out there, because I know there are quite a few of them that listen to this show as it is, how yes. can they find more information about film fatals? So we have a website, which
4: is com. So it's like somfatals, but it's film, because mm-hmm. it's a pun. Um, and on that website, there is a contact page where people can contact us. And if they live in a city where we currently have a chapter, which is New York, L.A., Austin, London, Sydney, Melbourne, Toronto... There are you know a few dozen like I mentioned. Then they can they can join. It's very easy. It's open to everyone who identifies as a woman director. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they live in a city where we don't currently have a chapter, um, there's information on how they can start their own. So it's a real it's a model that is easily expandable. It's like a franchise model as long as you have. <laughs> You know, three other female directors in your city, you can get together every month and start collaborating and, and tap into our community.
2: I'm sure it really depends on the narrative, but moving forward, do you see yourself shooting much more on film or is, are you completely open to digital filmmaking as well? It just really depends on the story. I'm just it wondering. It depends
4: on the story. Yeah. I do definitely have a love for 16 millimeter in particular, um, I love 35 millimeter as well. Um, But I also love, you know, I love all kinds of, all kinds of mediums. It does depend on the story. I shoot a lot of commercials and music videos and short form content digitally. So it depends on, for this particular story, for I Believe in Unicorns, knowing that I wanted it to be this subjective, visceral film that really explores the imagination of a teenage girl. I knew I wanted it to be on 16 millimeter because I wanted that grain and that grittiness and the feeling that this girl could have created this, this world. You almost see the fingerprints on the edges of the frame. Mm-hmm. But for another story, you know, you might want something entirely different aesthetically.
1: Well, Leah, I can't thank you enough for calling in today and talking to us about I Believe in Unicorns. I, I just, I believe in unicorns after seeing this movie. <laughs> thank
4: you me too
1: and, I, and, um, I, and, and everyone else can find out more
4: on our website which is just ibelieveinunicorns.com
2: and very quickly is it very easy to find film stock on ebay
4: it is actually easy <laughs> but it is expensive because people are hoarding it and holding on
1: to it so it's getting harder and harder uh, well I promise I will do you proud and entertain and educate your audience tonight for I Believe in Unicorns have a wonderful time thank you so much thanks Leah bye take care, bye. Okay, take care. And that was Leah Meyerhoff. And now we're going to jump right into our next our next victim today. We have Chantal Molnar. Hello, Chantal. Hi, how are you doing? Fine. And, wow, you picked a real hot-button topic to do a documentary about,
3: didn't you? Amazing that it's a hot-button topic, but yes.
1: <laughs> you know, and I, I have to tell you, when... I was first made aware of the documentary, The Milky Way, and I happened to be talking to my sound engineer, and he goes, oh, I think that'd be a really good, that'd be a really good movie. I think you should see that one. I, I, I think you should try and talk to the filmmaker. So, at Brian's, at Brian Leon's suggestion and request, I immediately emailed the publicist and said, Must have. Oh, wow. Great. So, and that was from a 23-year-old man that wanted to see this documentary. I'm thrilled at that information. I I thought that might. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this is something, we haven't seen anything like this. We've seen a lot of websites pop up about the Milky Way, about breastfeeding, the whole issue. Most of it is becoming politicized in terms of... uh, Breastfeeding in public, covering up, bathrooms, places for breastfeeding, all of this. It's just, if you look at a lot of the right-wing and left-wing political arguments, there are vicious battles out there about this. But at the heart of it all, it comes down to a baby and a mother.
3: Well, it actually is more than that. It comes down to the status of women, the status of mothers in America and in other countries. It comes down to their status and to the fact that women are not trusted, our instincts are not trusted, and therefore we tend to internalize that and not trust ourselves. And I think the basis for our whole film is how it's, it's kind of a lens looking at how mothers are treated um, in, in society, culture, and through in medicine. Mm-hmm. Because it's- as soon as something as basic as feeding your baby becomes an argument politically, you have to wonder, where did that come from?
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And Part of our film goes into the insidious change of culture that was created. The whole conversation around how to feed your baby has been created by the formula companies.
1: It did definitely has, and I think a lot of it also, once tele- the advent of television came, with the way women started getting portrayed more in terms of sexuality, in terms of, you know, basic motherhood. hmm And I think that also helped promulgate and possibly fueled the formula companies and said, ah. Yeah. Now, with all of your years in medicine as, as a nurse, was that what prompted you to finally sit down and say, We need to do something about this. We need to talk about this on a bigger level.
3: Absolutely. My production partner, who would have loved to have been here today, but she's working, (laughs) Um, she and I kept hearing the same uh, things over and over again from mothers who felt really helpless. You know, they were being kicked out of restaurants, or even before they left the hospital, they were uh, being harassed by physicians saying, You're not, your baby's losing weight, you've got to give formula. Um, There were the the things that we cover in the film in the beginning where we set up the problems, um, those things we kept hearing over and over and over again, and we thought, you know, what we're doing on an individual basis was not changing culture. It was changing each woman that we helped, you know, with those issues, but it wasn't changing culture, and that's when we came up with the idea of a film. I personally love the medium of film. And and actually, television, any any format, you know, that involves you know film esque sort of sort mm-hmm. of things, I, and I think it actually does change culture, and that's our hope.
1: Now, how did how did you and Jennifer begin this process, and then bring John Fitzgerald into this, uh, and come up with the theme? Because you tackle, it's very cohesively done. You start with, you know, Greek mythology, mm-hmm. and you take us on and take us through the arts. Mm-hmm. And then bring and you know a very terrifically laid out timeline, very coherent, very cogently laid out timeline. How did you? What was the process for telling a story that has so many moving parts like this?
3: Well, that was John, and I'll tell you, we found him because Jennifer, my co-producer, works in the office of Dr. J. Gordon in Santa Monica, and has access to the film industry <laughs> every <laughs> from lawyers to actors producers you know directors and John was one of her clients his kids were her clients and we met with him and he said you know we had met with other producers and they couldn't figure out how to take the complexity of what we had and lay it out cogently they they were frustrated with us John came up with the hero's journey and we dubbed Jennifer as the hero, and we just took, had her take us through the issues. So she was the focus of the film, and she could point out, you know, this is what's happening. You know, we went here, and this is what we see, and this is what I'm bringing home, and this is what I've discovered. So we were able to get a very complex issue laid out nicely, and that timeline, all of it, was John. We, had, we knew what we wanted to say, mm-hmm. and he was the one who laid out how to say it.
1: Now, how, how difficult was it, because you have a lot of interviews in here, and again, you know, John did an amazing job, along with your editors. Oh, um, the editors
3: were fabulous.
1: Cutting all of this together to have a coherent structure. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you go about determining who you would interview? Did you have These trouble were, getting people? Except for the
3: professionals, they were all Jennifer's clients. hmm and, you know, Alanis, Minnie, all of them were uh, Jennifer's clients, and she told them what she was doing, and they were just the ones who said, yes, I have something to say, and I'd like to be involved in it. And with the uh, experts, we picked the people that we knew were had the research behind them to support what we were presenting,
4: mm-hmm.
3: and... Um, you know, we got some great people. And then John was the one who came up with the art historian and the uh, head of the Semmel Center, the psychiatric hospital um, in L.A., who also had just, that was Dr. Weibrow. He had great things to say about how culture will fragment without breastfeeding. And um, But the other experts in terms of breastfeeding and nursing mothers and co-sleeping, those were the ones we chose based on supporting what we were trying to put out there which is the opposite of what public health departments and medicine put out there like don't sleep with your baby is what they say
1: mm-hmm.
3: and they you'd... think mothers are dangerous well some mothers can be but very not... few <laughs> that's true and i worked at, i worked at uci and we had that group of mothers who could you know i, I saw them all <laughs> oh. i didn't have the elite clientele that jennifer has i i worked with you know, heroin addicts and all of that. So I know there's a there's a percentage that can be dangerous, but in general, in general, mm-hmm. the the majority of mothers can be
2: trusted. Regarding finding funds for your documentary and financing it, what lessons did you learn through this process that hopefully you'll take to the next project? Or, or, and um, what all, what advice would you also give up-and-coming filmmakers as far as how to get the money for their projects?
3: I can't tell them how to get the money, but I will say, don't do it unless you have some money in place, at least $100,000. Wow. Jennifer and I are still very much in debt. And so I, I will not do another film until I have the funds in place. But mm-hmm. we were so passionate about this that we were willing to go into debt. Mm. Uh, Kickstarter was horrible a horrible experience for us, so I wouldn't advise anyone to do that. Oh. Um, unless you have a huge um, audience already, like if you have 100,000 people on your Facebook page, that might, a Kickstarter might work then, or if it's a subject like gaming, I don't know, there's subjects out there that get funded really easily. Sure. But we didn't get funded that way. We we had a a very difficult time getting money for this film.
1: And, of course, going into this film, you've also got trips overseas to Germany, Sweden and gaining entree into those facilities and those hospitals and staff and patients. Mm-hmm. And that's another, you know, aspect of the film uh, itself. How did you determine which hospitals, uh, you and Jennifer, determine which hospitals to speak to and travel to overseas?
3: Oh, well, it was fabulous. In um, in two thousand early 2009, my daughter and I, we have a friend in Berlin, and she... We knew we were doing this film, and my daughter was helping a lot at the time, so we flew over to be with her friend who was having a baby, and um, she said, well, you can film, you know, after I have the baby, you can film the self-latch and all that stuff. So when we met her midwives, they introduced us to the people over at St. Joseph Hospital. So we went over, and I, with my little handy cam, uh, interviewed the lactation consultant there. So we established a relationship with the team there, And in 2012, when we were ready to go back, I just wrote to them, and they laid out the red carpet for us. They had all the releases signed, everybody who was willing to be interviewed on camera, everything was signed, sealed, delivered to us. Wow. So I had a relationship um, three years prior with that hospital, and from there they told us who to speak to in sweden and we actually did our trip to sweden on the fly on the fly we were in berlin and we cut short our trip our time in berlin and went over to sweden uh based on the referrals that um that team gave us from saint joseph Mm -hmm. so it was all sort of (laughs) hastily put to i mean the people in Berlin I knew for years, but the Sc- Scandinavian trip, the Sweden trip, was um, very put together at the last minute, and we were really lucky to get some really great people there.
1: So how do uh, how do women, how how do mothers, women, and everyone else in America, how do they, ch- how do we change the system so it's more in compliant, in keeping with what's happening in Europe?
3: That's a really good question, and I had a good conversation with the director of the NICU at um, the Neonatal Intensive Care Unit at Loma Linda. And she said, we do almost what they do in Berlin. However, because our mothers do not have maternity leave, Mm
1: -hmm. they
3: can't stay with their babies like they do in Berlin. Even if we have the place for them, they have to go back to work. And so it's really amazing how you try to solve one problem, then you have to go back to the next problem, which is maternity leave. And as we pointed out in the film, the United States is one of only now, when we did the film, it was one of only four countries in the world that didn't have mandated paid maternity leave. Now we're one of three. Even Papua New Guinea has paid leave.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I personally think mothers should be heading to Sweden 18 months. Heck yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That gives you time to bond with your child and have a nervous breakdown and
3: come back. Well, and the nice thing is the woman that spoke in Swedish on the film, she and her husband were on, both on leave, and they were able to take um, work two days a week, each of them. So they were able to extend their leave far beyond the 18 months and work part-time. Mm-hmm. So that baby was never without a parent because they worked opposite days. And um, they could extend the leave, you know, So it was 18 months, but they were working two days a week. So they weren't taking it all in one lump, either of them. And so they they really have it figured out there. Um, We're having trouble here in the United (laughs) States getting a 12-week paid leave passed. Mm And interestingly enough, on our Facebook page, what I hear is women don't want it. They're saying oh, it's this whole thing about government being involved in our lives. There's a lot of women who actually would rather, I guess, I don't know whether these women who are against it are able to stay at home and therefore they're just thinking, oh, their tax money is going to go to pay these other women to stay home who are career. I don't know what it is, but it's often the women who are dead set against it. And I find that. Mind-boggling.
1: That is that is extremely surprising. That is not something that I would
3: have thought. Me either. Absolutely Uh, not. And I have I don't know what to say to him. Uh, You know, we try to reply in that. Well, it actually isn't going to be paid by the government. You know, I think we're so afraid of socialism in this country Mm -hmm. that even a government mandate like, you know, what has this whole whole conversation about Obamacare all comes down to the fact that the government mandated that you have to have insurance or something like that. It's like, wow, we're so afraid of that form of socialism that, I, I don't know, it, it it skews our ability to think.
1: Well, one thing that people don't need to think about is, you know, if for no other reason just to get enlightened on... The subject of breastfeeding, the subject of the status of women and how they're viewed in this country, and all the different con- the connective tissue that's going on. Um, they should see this. They should see the Milky Way. Go to the website MilkyWayMovie.com. Um, how? What is the what is the release structure? I know you're out on demand right now. I think.
3: Yes, we uh, apparently we released on uh, the fifth iTunes. Um, mm-hmm. in 37 countries in nine lang- in eight languages um which is awesome and uh so it's available you know Canada UK Australia um Mexico and <laughs> I mean, no it's all the countries that
1: don't need the educating
3: <laughs> <laughs> well actually a fair amount of them do but um and in France they they definitely needed it and, it and it did release in France and uh and on cable channels. And then the next phase is going to be on DVD. We are going to create a DVD with more footage. A lot of the footage, oh, what we left on the cutting room floor um, is just, it was heartbreaking. But uh, we will add uh, a lot of that to the new DVD. And we actually haven't started on that yet, so I'm not sure what the release date is on mm-hmm. that. But we are working on an expanded version of the dvd
1: any idea how much footage you ended up getting that your editors and john and yourselves had to sit down and go through my poor editors they said they'd never
3: seen so much footage they felt like (laughs) they were doing a master's thesis in film (laughs) oh no we had so much footage because we'd been collecting it for um five six years wow wow we really had a ton of footage, so um
1: well i think I think your editors, Amy roster and meredith perry they they deserve a lot of applause here
3: absolutely we they were amazing, and they also did uh, a fair amount of the writing too, so they were absolutely amazing. If anyone needs editors, please look them up.
1: <laughs> wow, no, I mean, it's i mean this is. I was absolutely fascinated by the documentary. I have to tell you, Chantal, there was so much information in here. Enough information, you actually could have broken this out. or And with what you have on the cutting room floor, a, a series on yes. HBO or something like that, or one of the health channels.
3: Yeah. And we actually th- thought of that before John came on board. We were thinking, well, maybe it should be like Ken Burns-esque where we do four mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> seriously there's enough information here and enough different prongs that you could even go deeper into exploring some of them absolutely um, which at some point I would love to I would love to see it turn into something like that at some point
3: we would too and you know if we, if we I, it's a medium that I love I would absolutely love to do more it, it was such a beautiful process and um, we had such a great team that I would actually love to do that, too. And that was our vision. What we're finding is it's just taking a lot more time, because it's just two of us. It's just Jennifer and me. Mm-hmm. We do have our lovely um, executive director of our uh, very baby, our newborn, uh, 501C3, and that's Eve Burns. She's helping us a lot. But in terms of the actual film, it's really just Jennifer and I, and she works full-time. and. <laughs> <laughs> It's mostly me. Mm. Things take a lot longer than we had anticipated, and we were hoping to have a huge website where people could get all sorts of information and do more in the film.
1: Well, uh, may, maybe the god Zeus will be looking down upon you and be sprinkling some of uh, some of the stars of the Milky Way down on your project, so that okay. it, it can take
3: off where you want it to go. That sounds awesome. What a, what a lovely blessing. <laughs> uh,
1: Chantel, I can't thank you enough. The Milky Way, milkywaymovie.com. People should check it out.
3: Thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Chantal. Bye-bye. And that was Chantel Molnar, the uh, one of the producers, participants, camera people, writers of uh, the Milky Way. We're going to take a short break right now. And we'll be back to hear from John McLean on Slow West. Located in the heart of Screenland, Culver City Observer is the number one newspaper in Culver City. Covering local news, politics, and community events. With sports by Mitch Chortkoff and movie reviews by Debbie Lynn Elias, Culver City Observer is the place to go to be in the know. When you think Culver City and the heart of Screenland, think Culver City Observer. When you think movies and movie reviews, think Culver City Observer. Culver City Observer, a division of Arizona Newspaper Group, is available in print and online at www.culvercityobserver.com.
0: Hi, everyone. This is Chuck Harold with my co host, Paul Tallyho Christo. From Security Guy Radio, regard as a verb, not a noun. Every Monday night at 7 p.m., we challenge the conventional wisdom of the security industry with our plain talk experience, humorous stories, and answers from the top security experts in the field. Tune in each week for the latest security news, lightning interviews, and a look at a featured security gadget or service. Join us on the web at securityguyradio.com. And listen every Monday night at 7 p.m. exclusively. AdrenalineRadio.com
1: And we are back Behind the Lens It has been a jam-packed day I mean, jam-packed, yeah. again yeah. but I think we have time to do maybe one clip or so of a film that I think you and I both loved mm-hmm. Slow West
2: Yeah, It's one of my favorite westerns last Maybe 10 years, actually. It's a very short film, but there's so much meat on the bone. I I really love this movie.
1: It is stunning. And to think that yeah. it came from a New Zealander, shot in New Zealand, which looks more like the American Old West of the 1890s than America does today. Yeah, it
2: looks like John Ford's West. Yes, yeah. very
1: much so. So I had a chance. You and I both sat down separately. We had one-on-ones right. with John. Yeah. So... Since I brought my sound clip, we're, we're going to hear mine. You
2: were the one who wasn't lazy.
1: Uh, uh, ah, yeah. yeah. So, I, you know, and I talked to uh, John and especially about his cinematographer, Robbie Ryan, who was uh, responsible for part of the beautiful visuals here. But the whole idea of this story, where did it come from? From a guy from New Zealand? Here's what he has to say.
5: Um, well, I, too, love old Westerns. You know, like, I mean, the the... The heyday for me was, you know, The Red River, uh, My Darling Clementine, Shame, uh, High Noon, uh, you know, so kind of, I did want this classical approach, you know, and I did deliberately not move the camera and have deep focus and, you know, a lot of those films, some of them were very noir noir noirish westerns Mm -hmm. and and, um, so I did think I would want, I wanted to approach it in that classic style and, and maybe stay away from the spaghetti westerns and stay away mm-hmm. from the the kind of modern day kind of pulp stuff so mm-hmm. um, so and when you re- when I re-watched a lot of those westerns some of them are real a lot of them are love stories you know and a lot of them are melodramas so it was kind of I didn't think it was so unusual to especially something like Red River or you know there, or High Noon they are in a In a way that they are, there is that strong love story element, Mm -hmm. and um, and Shane as well, you know, and and whether it's some like Shane where it's almost like two men that kind of love each other Uh in a way, you know, and and, um, so it felt like I was in familiar territory there, and the and the rest of it was maybe travelling America when I was. As soon as I was out of college, I wanted to travel America, maybe for my love of American cinema. But, um, you know, so it was, I felt like a European, a Scottish boy that came, come out to the West and travel mm-hmm. around could have that fresh approach, you know, could mm-hmm. have that tourist view. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, that was it, I think.
1: Well, and you have, you have a great old West story. You've got beautiful cinematography from Robbie Ryan. What else do you need? You gotta have a cast, and who better? Michael Fassbender. And so here, and I had to ask, I had to ask John about, as the ladies call him, Fassy, and here's what he had to say.
5: He was involved in the previous two shorts. I had I, made two short films, and each short film I made with him, he got more, we got more into kind of going over the script mm-hmm. and, and uh, um, sort of riffing on things mm-hmm. and... Uh, um, so yeah, I mean, I wrote the script with this great script editor back in England, but um, I had a few days with Michael to sort of really riff, really and, and enjoy, mm-hmm. and read, and talk, and and it really helps not just with his character, but with the, with you know the the plot or anything. It can mm-hmm. sort of some something can stick, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, it's just. I mean, and then you get on set you've got his, his skill on set.
1: And skill he does have, as all the ladies who see this movie will see, Fassbender in a white union suit that's wet.
2: Well, you know, very quickly, I love the lead, Karen Pistorius. I think she's an actress to watch. Uh, the camera really loves her. Oh, so, she's
1: luminous on camera.
2: She definitely held the frame. You mentioned Red River. She kind of reminds me of a Monty Clift kind of thi- kind of thing. She has a mm-hmm. presence to her that's yeah. really undeniable. So
1: And of course the other the other major talent in the film is Cody Smith McPhee and okay. this really Mark's Cody's jump. He's a lead
2: into the, lead in the movie.
1: Leading man. Yeah. And we're out of time. Brian's making funny faces and noises at us. That's all the time we have today. I'll be back next week, even though it's Memorial Day. Brian will be back. I don't know if you're coming back for the holiday. I'll be back. He'll be back. We'll be, and hopefully Lydia will be here too. So you can see our smiling faces. Behind the lens. Mm-hmm.